Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to episode nine of the Gen Z GOP podcast. My name is John Olds, and I'm alongside Mike Brodo and Ryan Doucette, my co-hosts. I want to begin today with a message of thoughts and prayers to the president and the first lady who have contracted coronavirus. Politics aside, this virus we wouldn't wish on anybody, and you're going to see a lot of terrible things said on the internet, on Twitter, Facebook. And I think that in the name of discourse, we should wish them all the best and wish them a speedy recovery and save the political hot takes for another day. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all Americans. And we wish the president and first lady the best. Another thing that happened in this decade-long week, the presidential debate between President Trump and former Vice President Biden. I don't think that it was really a spectacle that we can be very proud of. It was an example of bad discourse on a number of levels. There were a number of moments where you couldn't just you know, put your head in your hand and, and slump down and sigh. It just wasn't pretty. As a result of this, Mike Brodo, our founder and executive director, was quoted in a CNN piece talking about young people's reaction to the debate. And I think Mike had a really good take on the subject. So today our guest is Tim Miller, and he is an author at The Bulwark. He's the host of Snapchat show Not My Party, uh, which I think that our hashtag may have inspired him there. Uh, he's a former senior advisor at Our Principles PAC, the former comms director for uh, Jeb Bush presidential campaign, and he's a former spokesman at the RNC. Uh, Tim's also spent time on presidential campaigns for John Huntsman and John McCain. And it would seem to me that he only works for candidates named John. Uh, or Tim, rhinos. <laughs> exactly. Tim, welcome to our uh, podcast. It's a good deep cut, recognizing that it's John Ellis Bush uh, is Jeb. Um, thank you, John Olds and Ryan and Mike. Good to be with you guys and with other fellow Zoomers. Are you guys Zoomers? Is that what everybody is here? I don't know. They kind of use that term on the far right, so we'll just stick with the Gen Z label. Gen Z, okay. Well, it's good to it's good to be with you guys. I was just I was looking at the stats of my Snapchat show the other day, um, and ninety eight percent of the people who view not my party are younger than me, and so I'm I'm starting to feel extremely ancient, and so I felt like the best way to resolve that is to come on a podcast with you guys. Okay, well, we don't want to get too presumptuous because, uh, you know, we'll probably do an episode on entitlement reform a little later, so we'll make sure <laughs> it's still there for you. Okay, thank um, you. Uh, so, so, Tim, I want to kind of dive right in here. You've been pretty vocal about your opposition to the current administration, whether it's on Twitter or through your writing. Can you talk to us how about how your anger with the current state of affairs kind of bubbled over into the work that you're doing now? Yeah, um, I honestly wish I had a more deep-seated answer to this um, and, you know, sort of uh, had the vision to see the problems with the party arising from the inside, um, but I didn't. Uh, I, I had a glimpse of it in 08, um, uh, working for McCain, and, and, you know, Palin really turned me off quite a bit, and uh, you know, um, uh, I, I saw Huntsman as an opportunity to kind of get back into the party with you know, my fellow uh, center-right of rhinos, if you will. 
um, and, and then, you know, sort of went along from there. And, and I think I got very focused on the gamesmanship of politics for a few years after that, um, to my chagrin in retrospect. But what, what, what really created my anger was as simple as the fact that Donald Trump himself was just so far beneath what I imagined could be the minimum threshold of what would be an acceptable nominee for the president of the United States. Uh, and to watch one by one people who I admired and people who I was friends with and people who um, I modeled my career after, people who I read uh, growing up, all succumb to him for, for partisan, you know, out of just sort of sheer partisanship, out of sheer tribalism, uh, uh, really just drove, I drove me up the wall. Uh, I can remember, I mean, the first example of this I remember was uh, I remember after... I guess was Jeb lost at this point. We were in the final days of the Jeb campaign. I remember sitting uh, at a, at breakfast and hearing that Chris Christie was going to endorse Donald Trump, and it, that was really, you know, I had sort of figured that having worked in '08 and '12 and had these kind of crazy far right candidates or populist candidates, whatever you want to call them, bubble up and then drop in the polls. Michelle Bachman and Herman Cain, and you know, uh, you know, you could go down the list. Uh, I thought that would happen to Trump, and when Christie endorsed him. And Christie was a guy that I admired and a guy that I thought was from my side of the party. I, I, that was when it really kind of sunk in with me that, oh, my God, this is good, really going to happen. Like, like, the, like people are really going to line up behind this guy. And, and so, you know, I would say that was I was obviously angry at Trump far before that. But it was the, the submission to him that drove um, that, that, uh, that really drove my anger about the state of affairs in the party writ large. I, I, it's funny, I actually remember where I was when Chris Christie endorsed Trump. I was driving home from school, and I remember being like, you got to be kidding me. Really? He's the first one to, to drop? But, but anyway, yeah. I, I want to follow up on that because yeah. your work has kind of been, I guess, renamed or, or reworked into this burn it all down argument. And I think that there's merits to both sides of the argument. And we had Matt Lewis on this show to talk about why he doesn't think we should burn it all down. What is your justification for wanting to completely rebuild the Republican Party from scratch? Yeah. Um, I'm not the I'm not the. Uh, uh, I'm not waving the uh, the you know the leader of the arsonists. I don't think <laughs> I think that there are folks that are. Um, you know, I was on a panel with Steve Schmidt the other day where he said that every single Republican who's elected right now needs to be defeated uh, going forward. And I guess well, I sympathize with that on a visceral level. I don't know if I'm all the way out on that extreme. But my problem with Matt's um, uh, take, though, uh, which I think is far too generous with to the people who are still within this party is that, you know, I don't, what I don't expect is for everybody to be Tim Miller. I don't want everybody to troll the president, everybody to troll the president, every opportunity. I don't need everybody to, you know, vote against everything that Donald Trump wants. I, I, I just needed people to act in a minimum amount of good faith in, in taking seriously the responsibility that they have, which is a really important and sacred responsibility uh, as, as representatives of all of us in our duly elected government. And not besides Mitt Romney, not a single one of them it has in Washington. I mean, they've all, they all are peeing on us and, and trying to tell us that it's raining. 
I, I just, I, I, and so I, I, and so as we sit here today, with Donald Trump having contracted the coronavirus, this this uh, this once in a century pandemic, where we needed a serious leader, somebody to take the responsibility seriously, to be honest with us, to come up with a plan to solve the crisis, and where all he has done is lie to us and give misinformation and, and put people at risk, put his own supporters at risk, now put his own family at risk, now put Joe Biden at risk by standing next to him, maskless, while his kids stood next to him, maskless. Uh, well, he tried to undermine our democracy time and again by saying that that, that he thinks that our democracy is rigged uh, by refusing to clearly denounce white supremacists. Like, how can you sit there and say that this person should be the president of the United States for four more years? I, I, and so, you know, I can disagree with you on a policy point. I can disagree with you on your style of, 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 voting, of, of speaking out against Trump. You know, we can disagree. I was going to support Ted Cruz for president in 2016. Me and Ted Cruz disagree on a lot of stuff. Right? I, I, I can support people that disagree with me that act in good faith. Joe Biden disagrees with me. I can't support somebody that that on the most serious matter of judgment that faces them in their responsibility of being in office, whether this this menace should be the president of the should be in the leader of the free world for four more years. And, and for their if their answer to that question is yes, how can I trust your judgment in the future? How? So, you know, I, maybe maybe I will change my mind in four years if it's Nikki Haley against AOC or something. You know, I mean, things have, politics is crazy, politics has changed, never say never. But, but I think that that is a damning indictment of every single one of them. And it's hard for me to get past that. I wanted to segue here and kind of tie a few of those points together, because when we were having that burn it all down debate, the one argument that kind of struck me as pretty reasonable for why we should is the gaslighting aspect that's going on. Obviously, a lot of us here at Gen Z GOP are not too keen with the rise of the populist right in terms of their policies or maybe how they go about their rhetoric. But in one sense, like you said, Tim, we can disagree on the policies and that's what the party should be about and trying to put that coalition together. But it comes to the point where I'm talking to someone of the same party and they just can't even agree with me on the facts. And it reminded me of the article we wrote about the LOL, nothing matters Republicans. And it, I, I think there's a lot of points here is that one face value, the president engages in gaslighting to where people just don't even know what the truth is, or they just take his word over anything else. And I think that ties into this anti-elitist stance, even though he is an elite himself, which is confusing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where this gaslighting came from. Is this a new phenomenon that we've seen, or have you seen this before in the party and now it's just kind of center yeah, stage? I, because yeah, Some of this stuff I think is... Um, was a long time coming. I think particularly a lot of the populist and nationalist stuff was a long time coming within the party. I think the gaslighting is pretty sui generis of Trump. And I think that he's the, he's a responsible party. And, you know, I think that you've seen politicians over the years. I Look, I've been a spokesperson. I've had to fudge the truth to make my boss look better. Like that's part of the deal of politics. It's ugly. It's not, it's not perfect. We try to do it in good faith, but you know, everybody has a job to do, try to make their candidate make their boss look as good as possible but but there was always just this sort of line right um that that you felt like you didn't cross um when it came to that 
and you know telling people that that what they're seeing with their eyes is not true um you know just just uh, recklessly lying about you know easily verifiable facts right telling people that up is down and this is donald trump right this is you know his it's been his whole life story, um, you know. And he used to call the New York Post and pretend like he was John Barron and tell them and tell them about how great his sexual prowess is, right? I mean, this is just him. It's it's a, it's of a piece of him. So I I hope that that some of that goes away after him. Here's what I worry about, and 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 I'm glad you brought it up, particularly with this podcast, is what I see, and now I get to be my old the old guy on the porch, you know, saying get off my lawn. But what I see in in people that worked for me, younger. Um, you know, people in their 20s who are Republicans are, are, are people that, that got into this because they believed in certain principles, because they loved politics, because they loved government, because they loved conservatism, um, and, and, and who don't really like Donald Trump that much, but who see him as being part of their team. And so the way they've dealt with it is through this, as you said, LOL, nothing matters attitude, this nihilism, that... All that really, you know, what what comfortably smug does on Twitter, like the truth doesn't even really matter here. All that matters is that I can own, is that I own the libs, and 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 it's a tongue in cheek thing, where I know I'm bullshitting you, you know you you know you're getting bullshit, but I'm gonna say it anyway. And he, but here's the thing, is that there are a lot of people out there that don't know, that don't understand the game, that don't that don't buy it, that, that don't get it, and they're getting inflamed by this. And there's a whole generation, I worry about this, there's this whole generation of Republican staffers who think this is, they don't know any different. Like, they didn't live it during, they didn't grow up in the Bush administration, which had plenty of problems, by the way, but they didn't grow up in the Bush administration to have bosses who who, 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 who told them that, that they needed to be, you know, responsible and that they needed to, to uh, ensure that their facts were right and that, that you know, they need to follow the same kind of decorum that the boss follows when he's making arguments. They didn't live through this. They, they, they all they know is Donald Trump. So they think this is politics. This just grotesque nihilism, where you, where where you don't care what the facts are, where you don't care how cruel you are, uh, where all that matters is getting one up on the left. That is dangerous as hell. And and I I'm a, I'm concerned that even if Trump leaves, and, and gets defeated, which I hope he does. Um, uh, that um, I, I'm concerned that that part will stay. Okay, I'm going to push back. Not I want to hear good. more what you want to say about like kind of that last point you made because you know the three of us and everyone else in our org, maybe the farthest back that we kind of got involved was 2012. Um, maybe most of us got involved, you know, 2014, 2016, and so we're all kind of coming from this from very much the era of Trump. But obviously, some of us have, you know, taken a different route on, you know, the party and saying, look, this is not our finest moment. We can do better just based purely on anecdotes that we've heard from other people and just our distaste with the current, you know, status of the party. So I guess the question is like, yeah, there's a lot of people who've been, you know, misguided through this era. But do you think there's a way for us to kind of like reguide, put these people back on the right path? And, you know, transition the party to something much better um, and something that's we can actually be proud of. Uh, well, I don't want to just come and be the Debbie Downer here on, on for everybody. 
Um, but I, I, my honest answer is that I, I'm worried that we can't. I'm worried that it will take a long time. And I, and I, and I know that it will take a lot of work. And I'm happy to hear that you guys are doing it. But, but there is this, there's a power in this sarcasm, this nihilism, this dismissal, this, the, the, the tribalism. There's a power in it. And you guys know. You guys know better than me. And you see uh, uh, the TPUSA events. And you see what happens. I just watch, I just watch them on live stream. I don't go. But, but I mean, it is alarming. That, that is the way that they act and talk and treat the other side and treat immigrants and treat people of color. That, this, that was not how college Republicans acted during the Bush administration. <laughs> I mean, we, we might not have been perfect, you know. Everybody, uh, plenty of people are, are jerks when they're in college and get uh, get softer edges as they grow old. Me, I'm, I'm number one on that list. But, like, it's systemic. Um, and, 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 and you get very much mocked, I would say if you try to sort of argue for a pivot back towards um, sort of decorum. Uh, I, I don't think decorum is in vogue right now <laughs> or that norms are in vogue. And so I, I, I hope that there will be a backlash effect to Trump. I think that there's, I, th- I think that that's possible. I hope that, that people will see that this um, is dangerous, but it requires people say, you know, it requires people saying it. Right, and I remember when Nikki Haley did a, gave a speech. Was it at GW? I think it was at GW where she gave this speech talking about the dangers of own the libsism. Um, and I thought she gave a really great speech on this point. Um, it was at the beginning of the Trump era, and and, and like now it seems like she's she's not really any different than a Twitter troll sometimes. Tim, I, I, Tim, I was at that speech. Yeah, so tell me, give, refresh my memory. Well, it was it was this. You're talking about the Nikki Haley speech, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I remember being there, and there was the requisite, you know, left wing student groups protesting American imperialism outside. Sure. So we kind of walked through this uh, cabal of of folks with with paper signs and whatever. And you go in, and we we sit down, and Senator Ernst interviews Nikki Haley. And it was awesome. And I remember going in being kind of skeptical because she had, had worked for the Trump administration and she had kind of deviated pretty significantly from her, her roots as South Carolina gover- governor. Yeah. And and she gave a really awesome speech and she was talking about how owning the libs wasn't the end goal of politics. And she had talked a ton about her personal story. And she sounded like... I, it's it's sort of the beginning of where this organization even came from, at least in my heart, where it was, oh, that's that is my party. Like that is the group I want to be a part of. Yeah. And um so but anyway, I, I if if I may kind of switch gears on you a, a yeah. little bit. I so I was the president of GW Republicans. It was so interesting to me because in my freshman year, it was 2017. And there was a lot of enthusiasm in the club. You know, it was one of the biggest recruiting years ever because it was the first year of the Trump presidency. And, but there was a common theme among the people that we recruited. And they were all kind of, at least in my view, pretty normal. Like they weren't (laughs) there, they weren't there to just BS you through life. They were there to, you know, get a good education, 
be good political operatives, whether it's on the comm side or the policy side, whatever. And then in the last three years, it has just gotten significantly worse, whether it be gaslighting, whether it just be people acting in horrible faith. It's noticeable. So when you said that, it it really resonated with me. But a thing I want to drill down on, what was it like? The same, can I ask? Can I just ask real quick before you ask me? Can I ask you a question? The same people? Like the same people uh, being, do you sense, I mean, I don't need you to judge your friends or whatever, but like <laughs> people that, that came in that you thought were normal, who you feel like just this, the, the Trump era has, has corrupted the process or, or no. kind of a new batch of people have come in that, that are, are more, uh, more whatever, Trump, you know, Trump aligned. And, well, and, well, you know, and, you know that. Like, you know that people on the inside, everybody murmurs and no one, even if you outwardly support the guy, I mean, there are very few true zealots, let's put it that way. Um, But I've found that the new recruiting classes uh, of of freshmen that would come in would be more and more, uh, we'll say, detached from reality. And um, so that's, that's, that's how I experienced it. But I think, I think people mostly stay the same I think how it manifests themselves in the pu- how it manifests itself in the public sphere is different, um, but yeah. But I wanted to drill down though because you you I'm sure were a college Republican at one time, mm-hmm. and you worked in some of the you know the old guard uh, roles. What was it like working for those people? Were you proud to work for John McCain? Were you <laughs> proud to work for Jeb Bush? Can you tell us any stories that made you proud? It's so hilarious that that's a question now. You know what I mean? I mean that just shows you how this warps your mind. Like that, that right? That 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 is a thing that I, that many people that work for this man aren't aren't not only are not proud, actively dislike him. I it's that would have been unthinkable. Um. So yeah, I was um, I was more of a campaign guy in college. Um. Than, than actually participating in the club. I sometimes would go when there were good speakers and stuff. I was probably the club member that you didn't like um, because I was, you know, not, not uh, putting in the effort. Um, but I was interning on the side of the Republican Governors Association uh, because I had interned as a, in high school for Bill Owens, uh, who was governor of Colorado at the time and, and ended up taking over Republican Governors Association. So um, I did a bunch of campaigns. I was a campaign gypsy from like 04 to... Uh, basically, uh, 09, I did a bunch of different races. They just sent me everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, my first presidential was with John McCain and it was a life changing experience. And I, I remember again, me and McCain disagreed on some things. Um, this wasn't about issues. Uh, me and McCain, uh, disagreed on gay marriage, obviously. Um, and you know, I, I, I wrote about that at the time about how, how I kind of dealt with that compartmentalization and dealt with fact that I thought this was a good person who I disagreed with on this important issue to me. Um, on the flip side of that, maybe, as you're speaking of on who's on the more conservative side, I was supportive of the enhanced interrogation techniques under the Bush administration, um, the torture, frankly. And I, I really, I, to be honest, I didn't think that much deep, deep, deeply about it. And I remember being at a campaign event with John McCain one of the first ones where I was, you know, I got to drive with him in the car and he's talk, telling old stories. And I, it was just, I, it was crazy to me. This was like, to me, this would have been like somebody else sitting in a car, George Clooney. And it's the coolest thing I can imagine. We get to this event and I have my staffer hat on where I want him to be sound conservative and be strong. Cause we're in the Iowa damn caucuses. And, and somebody in the town hall asks him about that, about torture. 
And he, off the cuff, talks about his experience in Vietnam. And he talks about why America is an idea that means, that means something throughout the world. And that, that what we do has ripples effects everywhere. And the message we send has effects everywhere. And maybe some of these things are defensible and maybe some of these things make sense in a small, in a small you know, uh, in a narrow time. But that, but that, this is not something we should be doing. That we're better than this, and that he should know. And that did not get a lot of claps in that room. Um, and it was a gutsy thing to say. And uh, I just remember thinking, like, he changed my mind on it in that moment. Uh, and I couldn't have been more proud to work for him. Uh, and I'll, by the way, this is, we don't have to do ancient history. I couldn't have been more proud to work for Jeb Bush. I've Jeb Bush dealt with the most personal pain of any politician I've ever dealt with in a loss. His dad had been president. His brother had been president. He was the favorite. He got, we got killed. He got crushed by this idiot. And it was embarrassing every day to walk out. It, could have been, it would have been made very, very much sense on a human level for him to get angry, for him to get down, for him to get bitter, for him to blame staff, for him to lash out. He handled that loss with dignity, with better than anybody that I knew. Uh, he stood up for the people that Donald Trump degraded. I, I mean, I, I could not, I will, I will never have a bad thing to say about Jeb Bush. So yeah, this is not, it doesn't have to be like this. <laughs> you know, you can, we can have people who, who believe in conservative policies and, and are good people. Uh, you know, there's nothing necessarily inherently conservative about being a cruel asshole. Just to talk about the Gen Z aspect here, I think it's really yeah. important since our audience is, of course, our age, except for sure. maybe some of the boomer grandparents out there. <laughs> Shout out you. We still appreciate you. So obviously our mission here is to chart a new vision for the party among Gen Z. But going along with that is also trying to provide a good example of discourse. And we try to do this on the podcast, even when we disagree, because we realize that it's bigger than just the Republican Party right now. This problem we have in politics. This level of polarization is on both sides. You could argue that the right is really bad at it, and we should be more responsible for our own people. But how do we fix this from the start at our age? We have people getting involved in politics now, and what I see is just endless Instagram stories that are just so negative. I mean, there's some positive things, but it's all like you can't vote for Trump because he's a racist. And like, yes, we talk about that a lot, but it it's not productive in that sense. We need to go a little bit deeper. So I'm interested in how, how can we fix this polarization problem among young people? Because I just think a lot of the boomers are kind of a lost cause at this point, if you're peddling <laughs> QAnon nonstop. But how can we fix the problem before it starts, I guess, is how can we set a new future? Because we can't get anywhere in politics if we can't even agree on the facts. And that's really what's disheartening to me. And yeah. I, I see this tendency growing. Uh, it's going to be tough to happen as long as we got this guy around uh, because he just breathes negativity um, and, and, you know, sort of it's tough to overcome that. Um, a, a, a couple of things that just, just popped straight to mind. Um, I hope one thing that breeds comedy and comedy, not comedy, um, and, and discussion is actually engaging with other people who think differently than you. And, and I do worry about, you know, on uh, social, I think, I actually think maybe your generation will be better at this. And that, that for some reason, that social media for 
you know, people older than me, basically Gen X and above, like put them into these little cul-de-sacs where they actually heard less from the other side than they did before, even though they had all this information at their fingertips. Um, and and, and I, the best way to gain an empathy for somebody else's point of view is to actually talk to them and listen to them and hear what they have to say. Um, and so, I mean, my biggest result, my biggest, the thing that I, that was best for me, frankly, in my life was I went and did campaigns in real America. Um, I didn't just stay in DC. Um, I, uh, I was, I had this great gift of being gay. So all of a sudden I had to like consider, uh, what it was like, uh, uh, to be vulnerable. Um, you know, I wasn't just like a white guy that never had to, had to deal with any challenges, uh, that helped give me, I think a, um, insight into, um, how other people, other vulnerable communities feel when they hear and see certain kinds of language, um, things that, that I didn't really think about when I was a, a, a kind of a jerk, uh, growing up, uh, I, that, traveling. I mean, I just think that is the best thing that people can do. Engage, try to engage, find spaces to engage. And one thing that we're trying to do at the Bulwark is at least, this is a minor thing at this point, is at least create a space for the center left and the center right to engage. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're probably meaner than we should be to the nationalists and the socialists. But, um, uh, you know, we all have room to grow on that front. But at least we're creating a space for people um you know, who have differing views on various policy things, but who share principles to engage. Like I, I, doing that on campuses, I, I think is important. I, I just, I feel like we somehow have, are all getting further and further into our corners, despite the fact that we have more access to each other's points of view. So we live in this day of age that as, you know, we, we kept talking about on these campaigns, it's, very much um, you get involved and you kind of go through the motions of, you know, maybe supporting Trump accidentally. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I want to work on, you know, a state rep campaign or a U.S. House campaign. But then, you know, based off of the how like Red Dialer or any of these like walkbook apps are working, you're also going to inherently be working for Trump. And I've had people ask me this questions like, I'm younger. I want to get involved, but I don't want to get involved in that. I and I think the party needs to like look at this for future examples and are like, hey, maybe we do need to do a better job on making candidates that will really motivate young people to get out because we see it. The data is there, Mike. I know we've talked about this. It's like ninety-one percent are voting of uh, Gen Z are voting for uh, Joe Biden, and it's just like that's. Not that I want people in Gen Z voting for Trump, but it's like, I think that's an inherent issue that, you know, next election cycle, let's say we have a moderate Republican up and someone who actually represents, you know, a good Republican party, are those same 91% going to keep voting for the Democrat nominee or are we going to improve as a party? And so I guess like in the short term for the four years, let's assume that President Trump loses in November, what are kind of the first like two or three things that we can quickly do as a party that would transition us in your view to be better um, next cycle? 
Yeah, I mean, this is an argument for burning it down, by the way. Speaking clearly about Donald Trump might be a better way to recruit that 91%, or that seems like too uh, too high of a percent, but whatever it is. Um, just one practical thing, because I do want to give an optimistic thing um, uh, that people can do now, is I hear what you're saying about House and Senate campaigns, but governors are a lot more isol- isolated from this. You know, I mean, Larry Hogan, Charlie Baker, uh DeWine. Tim, we're we're all Baker alums. Yeah, there you go. Dewine's kind of a sent kind of a goofy tweet, uh, but uh, you know, uh, do see. I mean, there are options, you know, out there, and uh, you know, you don't have to work in D.C. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, as far as what the party needs to do, I I hope you guys do this because I don't know that I got it in me anymore. But um, there needs to be a fight. I, I'm worried that that the fight has kind of been lost for a little while uh, between the more nationalist populist side and a more sort of pluralistic, classically liberal conservatism, a conservatism that believes in small government, that liberal values. Um, but, I, you know, it's worth fighting for. There are going to be people in primaries that are on the right side of this um, fight. And, and why not work for them? Who cares if you lose? I worked on a ton of losing primaries. They were great. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of emotion in a primary. It's like a family feud. Uh, it's a smaller staff. So you get, you get kind of more experience. You get to go up the ladder. So find a candidate you like, even if it's a guy that's a long shot, like John Huntsman was, that was the best experience of my life. Um, uh, so, you know, as, as far as like what the party itself should do, I, I just, I don't think that this is a top-down thing. In 2012, I worked on the autopsy, the famed autopsy at the RNC that Donald Trump just used as toilet paper, you know, about all the things that the party could do better. I still believe all those things to be true. But the reason why it didn't work wasn't because the people at the top didn't try to make it work. It's because the voters didn't want it, you know? So, so like, the solution to this is not going to come from Kevin McCarthy, um, you know, uh, the solution is going to come by, you know, convincing, um, a- enough people within the party that this is an option. Maybe that solution comes by accident because it's the Democrats that go crazy. So more moderates come back into the party, you know? So, so you guys can't control that. So I wouldn't try, right? Just do what feels right for you. Support candidates that you like and can feel good about. And, um, you know, go out and get and get involved in campaigns. Um, you know, where you're going head to head with the national swing. <laughs> go work for Republicans in blue states, um, where there's more of an appetite for this. Uh, like that's that's the first step. Well, Tim Miller, thank you so much for coming on. I know you you have a a busy day, and we just wanted to thank you for coming on and answering our questions with such with such candor. You uh, certainly serve as uh, a voice of wisdom for so many of us, and your advice on where we go next is certainly valued, and as we continue this mission, voices like yours will become more and more important. So we wanted to thank you for coming on today. So much appreciate that, guys. We'll see you and uh, the listeners on the Snapchat show, you know, or in my Twitter DMs, whatever. You can find me. (laughs) For sure. All right. We'll see everybody. See you, Tim. And that's a wrap for us today here on episode nine of Gen Z GOP. We wish you all the best as we move forward into this critical election year, and we hope that you will 
Continue to follow our work, whether it's on Twitter at Gen Z GOP org or the podcast Gen Z GOP pod. Uh, be, feel free to sign up online at our website, www.genzgop.org. A special thanks today to Tim Miller, who was kind enough to come on our show and answer our questions. Uh, feel free to listen to his Snapchat show called Not My Party, and be sure to find him in bylines in the bulwark. Thanks so much, everybody, and have a good week. <laughs>